Welcome to Profit-Led, a podcast by and for bootstrapped founders brave or crazy enough to grow a business to profitability with very few resources. Profit-Led is brought to you by eWebinar, the leading automated webinar platform built to save you from doing the same webinar over and over again, from sales demos to customer onboarding to training. This season, Profit-Led's host, Melissa Kwan, who is also co-founder and CEO of eWebinar, will walk you step-by-step through the company's journey to a million. Melissa is a three-time bootstrapper who has spent 13 years building startups. Together with co-host and eWebinar COO, Todd Parmley, they will dive into one major topic per episode, sharing war stories, mistakes, and lessons learned as they grew the company to a million in annual recurring revenue 36 months after product launch. So buckle up, fellow bootstrappers. It's going to be one heck of a ride. Welcome to Profit-Led, the podcast for bootstrap entrepreneurs looking to make it happen. My name is Melissa Kwan. I'm the co-founder and CEO of eWebinar and your host. With me is my co-host, Todd Parmley, eWebinar's COO. Hey, Todd, how's it going? I'm good. I'm great. I'm glad we're on, uh, what is it, episode four now? (laughs) So four. We're so grown up. We are. We're very grown up. In the last episode, we talked about why I chose to bootstrap eWebinar and what it means to bootstrap a startup, how we made it work by keeping burn as low as possible, the different funding options available for bootstrappers, and common misconceptions. We also talked about how being a bootstrap company shapes eWebinar, our culture, and how we make every decision, which I think is important for our listeners to understand because being a bootstrapped lifestyle company is the ethos of our company and really sets up the premise for the rest of the season. It's what makes us who we are and why we are the way we are. And this season of Profit-Led is all about our journey to a million at eWebinar, bootstrapping the company from day one. Our goal is to give a window into what it's like to build a company with very little resources. Each episode goes in-depth into one major aspect of our journey. We share war stories, mistakes, lessons learned as we grew the company to a million in annual recurring revenue over 36 months. Today on episode four, we're going to talk about putting together a founding team with limited resources, or really like very, very limited resources. (laughs) So Todd, we've come such a long way since it was just the two of us. Yeah. From our, what is it? pasta in the village where we had lunch and talked about eWebinar for the first time. Yeah. And I remember the next week I saw you to conceptualize this more, you're like, oh yeah, I'm on a different diet now. And you had like a bag of almonds. I'm like, 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 I'm only eating this now. I'm like, what? You just had like, you just had like carbonara, like raviolis (laughs) like last week. Right. And then I'm eating almonds. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, I don't like this version of you. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> where do you want to get started with today's conversation? Well, last time we talked about the decision to bootstrap, right? And you had, and the pre- episode before that was how did you come up with the idea of eWebinar? So you have an idea, you decide to bootstrap, and then what? So it's time to like put together a team. So how did you think about putting together a founding team? So I started eWebinar like incorporated it two months after I sold my previous startup. And not many people know this. So I had the same co-founder for 10 years, and now I have a different one who's who's David, who's also my life partner. But I really had like PTSD from that co-founder. And it's not like he was a bad guy. Like we were best friends. He was super trustworthy. Like we really were like each other's strongest relationship for those 10 years. Like that's what I felt like. But even though he was a great engineer, he was not a good CTO. And that was actually the one thing we never found a resolution for. We never overcame that. But that was where every single debate, argument, conflict came from was he was not a great partner, like co-founder in that sense. He was just an amazing engineer, but he never led a team before. But it's not his fault because we started working together as soon as he graduated from university. So he never worked in like a corporate environment where he learned like teamwork or really even learned like CTO processes. We didn't have processes. We didn't have a Jira. We didn't have like a Monday or like Trello. We had nothing. Everything was in his head. So like you would die. Like you would not survive. Oh my God. <laughs> like a process oriented person would not survive. And 
near the end of that company, I realized that I had built the business, but on his timeline because nothing was ever on time. And I wasn't a tech person and I couldn't critique what he was doing. And I really trusted him hundred percent, but he wasn't ever giving me the thing that he said he would give me. And I don't actually think that is an uncommon thing. If you're a business founder that don't know how to code. Like if you had an incredible CTO who really understands where you need to be and that you've made promises to customers based on what they say, like you're very lucky. But I think a lot of developers, like actually my old CEO who bought my company once said like the better developer you are, the more optimistic you are. And so the least likely you are to give a realistic timeline of anything. (laughs) I spent 10 years working under those conditions And I was just tired of like having a co-founder that didn't understand where I was, that I didn't feel like was a true partner and that I couldn't figure out how to manage, right? For lack of a better term. So I was frustrated with all that. And I thought I could start this company without a co-founder. So you weren't looking for a co-founder. You weren't looking for a CTO. You were going to do it. No. You were going to do it. Yeah, right. Okay. No. So basically I thought I could start this company without a CTO. And, and and the thing is, I had such little knowledge into what coding means, even after 10 years of, of like running a startup, that I thought I could have a tech company without a tech co-founder, that I could just hire a dev shop that would do everything product and they take care of it. And then I could do everything I'm good at, which is building the business. And so that kind of sounded like heaven for me. And I had a friend that owned a dev shop that I trusted and I thought this shop, I would pay them because now I had some money that I exited. I would pay them to make the first version and they would be my co-founder. So that was kind of like step one of my original thought. And of course it didn't end up that way, but it did start that way. So that was kind of like, that was the next step, I guess, after I called you. And we had talked about that a little bit in the second episode. Is like, I knew I needed someone to help me with content and conceptualizing and market research and language on the website, which was you. And then I needed someone to help me build the thing that we were going to come up with. Okay. So then that was the quote unquote founding team at first. It was me, you, and the dev shop in, where were they? They were in Canada. Canada, right. Yeah. And- I think it's probably helpful to point out that in this case, a dev shop also included designers. Like not only did they help us with product design and developing the product, but also they did brand identity and they helped us put together our first version of our website, right? For marketing purposes. Yeah. So when I talk about like a dev shop, they were a full service dev shop. So they actually had and still have an incredible kind of UI UX designer that was also responsible for like, I forgot if it was Twitter. No, it was Dropbox and Medium. He was also responsible for like, I don't know how big, but he definitely took part in it. But he was not just branding and like really understood the concept, but also like UI, UX. And actually it turned out that we were like the biggest project that he had ever designed. It's very rare that I think a designer gets to go from like just incorporation to like the first version. But yeah, it was basically a company that I thought... I could offload everything except the business to. And unfortunately, it turned out to be like a fairly expensive mistake, but it did leave, lead me to David, who is my current co-founder. What if David wasn't an option? What if there was no David? What would you have done? Where would you find, once you realized, okay, I need a CTO, yeah. then what? What do you do? I think I would have called up my ex co-founder again. Like we were, I mean, he was still contracting for the company that bought our company. I might've done it, but maybe reluctantly, I think. So after we sold that company, I did talk to him about different projects and big and small, but nothing really materialized. And I really felt like while it made sense that we continue to do new things together, it also felt like both of us felt like in our souls that we were ready to move on from each other. It's like when you've like kind of come to the end of that friendship because you've grown. It was 10 years. Like we were different people. So I felt like it was a bit forced. And honestly, like to find someone that feels passionate about the same idea that you feel passionate about is quite difficult. 
But if I didn't have David, I would have maybe called him up and and I would have sold him on the idea of I really needed someone. But the second thing I would have done is I would have reached out to my immediate circle of friends who were probably senior in their engineering roles, who were probably pretty stable in like their financial position. So maybe they're a CTO for another company and they're kind of ready to come out on their own and we didn't need to pay them a market rate for the next two, three years. I would find that person, like someone who's not fully money-driven like because they have enough of it right now and maybe someone with like a young family or whatnot that wants to stay at home and wanted less structure. Like I would definitely look for that guy, but it would absolutely have to be someone that doesn't have a full-time job. Like I would have needed to find someone that was in this with me full-time because I was doing it full-time. Right. We have done well with David. I think that's an understatement. (laughs) He was right in my house though. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's true. (laughs) You didn't have to look far, but let's say you didn't, right? Going back to this idea, you didn't. How do you vet somebody? Because I'm also, I've worked in product for 20 years and I conceptually understand code. I have, I can really collaborate with engineers, but if I'm asked to assess someone's ability for system design, for coding, like how do you do that? Everyone thinks they're a great coder. This is the problem. Yeah, I know. <laughs> right? But it's like a Rubik's cube, right? It's just like gamble. You know, like coding is is hard and there's so many, there's like a hundred paths to get to the same place. I mean, just to give some context, right? Like I did work with a dev shop for a year. You were there for most of that. I mean, all of that, actually. You were there for day one. And things weren't working. And we got to a place where, because with dev shops, like you pay by milestones, So let's say there were like four milestones. It got to a place where they couldn't reach the next milestone, but they were trying to reach it so they could get paid. But not all software is built the same. So things weren't working. They were throwing more people on it, more time. We weren't getting the product that we needed. They wanted to get paid. So nobody was winning, right, at that time. And David was a fractional CTO for other companies. He was helping kind of advise on the technology because we were always going to go from the Canada dev shop to a Vietnam dev shop to save on costs after the first version was built. I just wanted the first version to build by like somebody in North America so that the quality would be higher in theory. But as David was critiquing things, he's like, oh, this is wrong. This is wrong. And this is why it's not working. I'm like, you know what? Like no one's winning. You're not coding, but you're saying things are wrong, but you're not fixing it. These guys are trying to do more stuff, but they're just burning resources and time for us. And then I feel bad because it's a, it's a friend's dev shop and now I'm not able to pay them. So everything was kind of imploding. And I was like, you know what? We need to end this relationship like with the dev shop. Why don't you start helping? Within like a week of David starting to actually code, like things were working. Like they started working for the first time. And while I don't know how to tell a good coder from a bad coder, I do know that good software works and bad software doesn't work. Yeah, right. And it is really as simple as that. Yeah, that's right. When things really start to work, I'm like, okay, we need to accelerate this kind of ending of this relationship. So unfortunately, it was at a friend's dev shop. Our friendship's not really the same anymore. It was not like their fault or our fault. I think we both hugely underestimated the size of the project. And as people do, it's like renovating a house. <laughs> it's like, it's going to cost 50000 It's like, no, it's 500 So... It didn't end on great terms. We did kind of recover from that a little bit, but it's not the same. But it was better for the both of us. And David started helping full time. And like I basically just went to him and said, hey, I don't have a tech co-founder. I now realize that a founding team of a startup needs a tech (laughs) co-founder. Otherwise, it's not a real startup. What I ended up doing was I just asked David like, hey, like I need a co-founder. You seem to be making things work what is the equity that you need to feel invested in this project? Like you're an owner, but you're also coming in a year later. What is that number that you need to do this together? And that was actually how that relationship started. And I think like how you vet someone, whether someone is technical or not, is how I would vet anybody is you just give them a project, right? So In my previous two startups, I also worked with my co-founder as a contractor before we became like co-founders. So you just see if they can do what they say, and you just see if when they code, the software works. Yep. I remember when David 
came in to kind of assess the situation, even the way he was talking about the problems that he was finding showed a level of expertise that I recognized as having worked with talented engineers. So I can say that immediately from the beginning, I felt like a much deeper sense of confidence, right? And relief. (laughs) Yeah, and relief. Oh, my God. And then there was a lot of work to fix what was under the hood. The front end looked okay, right? But to fix what was behind... He rebuilt a bunch of stuff. Yeah. It took time to fix that, right? And that's the quote-unquote expensive mistake. But then things stopped breaking. Like, we rarely had outages. The only issues that came up, and the only time we did, was when something was really something we couldn't have, like a blind spot. Yeah, like Amazon was down, or like sometimes Vimeo goes down, which is kind of our backbone. But there were things that like... There were decisions made that were just really weird, right? So to give context to people listening, like the first step of creating an e-webinar is you upload a video. And we use Vimeo as our video provider. The first version of the video uploader worked as follows. It would upload first to something that like some cloud that we had, and then it would then upload to YouTube, and then Vimeo would download from YouTube. It didn't make any sense. Yeah, it was bonkers, wasn't it? And the thing is, like, the problem was, like, every time I went back to my friend's dev shop and was like, hey, David said this, they'd be like, oh, don't worry, we'll fix it. And this was the crux of the problem is, like, I trusted them because I had to. And I didn't have someone on my side to ask the important questions. When it's my friend, especially, and they say they're going to fix it, of course, I'm, I'm not going to question them. But it never gets fixed. And it doesn't work. And then now I don't have a product to sell. Yeah, and it's an inherent tension with a dev shop, right? Because they want to just make things work. And even if they have great intentions, it's not like they were consciously hiding anything. Like you said, we were not really able to see behind the curtain, right? Because if we had had somebody on our side, they would have at least, at the very least, been able to tell us what they saw that didn't seem like it was going in a good direction. Yeah. And I mean, now, like when people ask me for advice on like working with dev shops, I'm like, I only work with dev shops. However, please don't do it unless you have someone full-time on your side that's aligned with your values and what you care about and your business. Because otherwise, like, in fact, like, I feel like a lot of times when you're working with dev shops, like the motivation is kind of misaligned, right? Like they want to get paid as quickly as possible and they want to hit this milestone. So it doesn't matter how quickly they get to that milestone. Like they just want to get to it. So the quality of what they're building, because they're not building for scale, they're not a long-term team. Once they hit this and they show you, and I'm not a technical person, and then I'm just going to pay you. I think a lot of bad experiences just come from not having a technical lead. But I also think that a lot of agencies in general, not just development, but marketing also, it's much easier to build a feature of something that exists right? To add on to something that's successful, right? To take something from like one to two, but zero to one has so much experimentation. Yeah. It's really hard. And iteration. Like, in fact, the first time we launched a product, I remember like the first time we had a thousand people trying to join a webinar right. and the system was crashing. <laughs> I remember like David jumped on it and he fixed it immediately. He knew what the problem was, but like, I remember like just this feeling of relief because I knew that if I was working with a dev shop, they wouldn't be on my time. and But this person's having this webinar now and they wouldn't be able to figure out that problem as quickly as a person that's on my side. So that's when I really understood like, okay, this is why restaurants have chefs and startups right. have technical co-founders. Yeah, right. In hindsight, it's so obvious, but I get how at the time it really seemed like a perfectly reasonable path to take. But nothing's obvious until you live through it. It was also obvious that I wouldn't like split my company with someone I didn't really know very well. So why would I go to a co-founder that I haven't never worked with? Or why would I go to a co-founder if this dev shop told me they can do everything I want to do? Who am I to say, you're not going to give me that? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just funny. Once it becomes clear, it's clear. But when it's not, (laughs) what is it? Denial is not a river in Egypt? Or maybe that doesn't quite apply here. But So let's switch gears a little bit. You started eWebinar with the premise that you were only going to work with contractors, right? Yeah. Why did you make that decision? Truthfully, I just really do not like managing people. I'm bad at it. 
And even in my last company, like my old co-founder, like he's the opposite of me, right? He loves going to the office, the nine to five, having a team, like to kind of banter all day and like love structure. I am complete opposite. Like I socialize with my friends, not my company. And I was nomading and that team was in Vancouver. And I've always hated the confrontational conversations you have to have when someone doesn't work out. Because I'm the person to have that conversation. I just always dreamt of a company where I could work with people that I didn't have to manage, number one, but also people that were self-motivated so much that I didn't have to manage them. And that they would be here because they want to, not because they have job security. I just knew that the next company, I wanted fully remote team and only work with contractors. But also, I think it's become much easier to hire overseas or anywhere in the world for really passion and skill set and not locality. That hiring contractors is the only way a bootstrap company like ours can survive, can be in existence, right? Like how much would it cost to hire even engineers in Canada, not even to mention the US, like I wouldn't be able to afford that person. A junior person would start at 75,000, whatever that is, right? And then it goes up to, you know, sky's the limit. But I think there's a beauty in being able to hire someone anywhere in the world who loves your project, who wants to be a part of it, and you can pay them market rate because I want to pay people market rate. I don't want them to work for less. Right? I don't want to give them that life. I feel bad carrying that. So the idea that I could hire anyone anywhere in the world, pay them market rate or more by you know giving a bonus or whatnot, like at the end of the year, is like compelling to me. Like I'd rather have someone on our team with value alignment than someone's like, oh, I'm working here because you're in Vancouver or you're in New York. Yeah, for sure. And going back to that feeling, and I have I share it by the way, of not wanting to manage people, not feeling like you're good at managing people. But when people are independent and invested and passionate, then it's like you become collaborators, right? You're not having to manage them. You're sharing direction maybe, right, as the CEO, but it's just not the same. So you end up with partners. You end up with collaborators rather than people you're trying to manage. It's just a different mindset, I think, on both sides. And a lot of people that we contract, contract for someone else. Right. And they're usually like a bit more senior, right? Like it's very hard to find a junior contractor, at least for what we do. And they're fairly senior. They probably enjoy other freedoms in their life. And therefore, they're more motivated. And they don't need the social aspect of being at work physically with people. At this point in my career, I find that more freeing. To know that I can put this thing in the hands of someone, I don't have to check their work. Like It's just such a luxury. And I actually think the contractor model is better for both sides. So for our side, of course, is the benefits that I mentioned. But for the contractor side, they're being hired for the highest dollar per hour for their expertise. So if I'm really good at writing long-form content that is SEO optimized, that is the only thing I do. And the clients that hire me pay me $2,000 in a piece. But now I'm working with five clients. Whereas if I were to be hired as a full-time writer, I would have to do a lot of other things that's not just long-form SEO. So now my time, I'm not making the best and highest use of my time. So I actually think on the contractor side, if you can manage finding clients and know how to like promote yourself and, and be self-motivated, you can actually work the same hours, but actually get much higher dollar for your time because you are the expert for that thing. Yeah. And there's a sense of ownership too. And there's pride in your work. There's just so many other things that come along with it. How did you find our contractors? Like how have we found contractors? Always by referral with development because they're coders, we only work with dev shops. Like we have tried hiring an independent developer, but I think what we realize, and, and this is something that David's told me, like, unless you're super senior and there are other things that motivate you, you want to learn from other people in the office. You want to bounce ideas. You want to be together and you learn by osmosis. And we know we can't give a developer that. So we hire through dev shops and they have an office, right? So we hire through a Vietnam dev shop in Ho Chi Minh and also now through a Norwegian dev shop that has an office in Ukraine. So they primarily hire in Ukraine, but give them like European benefits, which I actually think is super cool. But 
we picked Vietnam because we just love Vietnam. So we wanted more reasons to go there. And I heard like (laughs) 50% of the population is pretty young because of the war and people are like hospitable and hardworking and all the big tech companies are, are starting in Vietnam for these reasons. So I was like, yeah, cool. Like, let's go there and check it out. So before I went there, I just posted in this Canadian founders Facebook group and asked if anyone knew dev shops in Vietnam. And I got five names and then like a recruiter or something. And actually we went in 2019, winter of 2019, we went to Vietnam and we met with all the dev shops. We met the founders, we met the potential team members. We wanted to see how good they were at speaking English versus writing English and just wanted to get a feel for like what the work culture was like. And then we picked the one that we thought that we vibed with the most. And that was the most willing to work with a company as small as ours. And there still are dev shop today. Actually, the Norwegian dev shop I heard about through a friend when I was at a house party in Bangkok last year. So the thing is, if you're on LinkedIn, every single day, you will get multiple advertisements on DM (laughs) telling you that my dev shop has the best developers in the world. If only that were true. I wish that were true. (laughs) But it is so far from the truth. How does everyone have the best developers? It's just impossible. So number one is definitely by referral, but even like we've known each other for years before eWebinar, but even now with like any writer, any marketer, any designer, it's 100% through somebody that has worked with that person before or someone I know in my immediate network. Because mostly we don't have time to waste on someone that doesn't work out. We need some sort of reference that we trust. But I also think there's like, a lot of people would disagree on this, but I think there's beauty in working with people that you already know. Yeah. Oh, for sure. I love working with friends. I think 50% of the time it doesn't work out, but I personally love working with friends and absolutely I've had bad experiences. However, I think it's still cool to be able to build a company with friends. Yeah. And when it does work out, right, it's amazing. It doesn't stop me that there are times where it actually did blow up. (laughs) Yeah. Right. It's a risk right? But when it works out, it's amazing. So I think a lot of people are hesitant to work with contractors. They think contractors are less committed. How would you respond to someone who sort of had that point of view? I think the word contractors carries this connotation that like you have 10 other jobs. Like that's what people think about, right? But a contractor to me is just someone who works with an international company. Because paying you as a contractor is the only way I can hire you, right? Like if you're in Canada, you might have to become an employee anyway, because we're incorporated in Canada. And we, if we treat you like a full-time employee, like we could get challenged that you have to become an employee. So being a contractor is as much, I guess, an accounting thing (laughs) as it is like just a role that someone chooses. But I think it's a misconception Because I think people think contractors are less focused because they're working with multiple clients. But the way I see it is, like I said before, is you are doing the thing you're best at for me. And I love that. I love having a quarter of your time because I would rather you spend the rest of your time doing something. I think everybody should spend time doing what they're best at. We try to do that within the company as well. Otherwise, it's just, it takes too long and it's exhausting. Also, like, I think when people think about contractors, they think, oh, this person is part-time or they bounce in and out. It doesn't mean that because you get to define that relationship, right? Like you get to define the scope of what they're working on, how much they work, how they work with you, whether or not they can take other projects. So, I mean, with anybody on our team, they could take a side project if they want, but customer comes first, right? But I think with the people on our team now, I think they're so invested in eWebinar that like, this is their thing, but I don't want to stop someone from doing what maybe helps them be more creative or something on the side that they feel like they need, right? Like I wouldn't want someone to stop me. So we actually encourage those things. And I mean, both you and David had contracting jobs for one to two years, right? Like as we were starting this company and it actually helped benefited us because we didn't have to pay you guys the the rate that we otherwise would have. So I think it's a misconception that like contractors are less committed. They're not like employees. They don't take you as seriously, right? Because they're always on to the next thing. But honestly, for us, like a team member is a team member. And 
so far it's worked out. And I think it's to your point, like it's really empowered people to take ownership and feel like they are contributing to this project because they're not slacking off. And like in a small startup, if you're not contributing, we know immediately. For sure. Yeah. It encourages people to bring them their best selves to work, right? When they're working for you. Yeah. I mean, you started as a very part-time contractor. That's true. That's right. Did you feel less committed to eWebinar because of that? Because I actually felt like you felt what it felt like to me was you were more committed to eWebinar because of that. Because it was like the fun thing that you were doing outside of like the normal job that was like paying you pretty well. Hey, I'd like to take a second here to talk about my own company, eWebinar, and our mission to rescue people from what I call webinar hell by saving you literally hundreds of hours every month through webinar automation. eWebinar was designed to take a pre-recorded video and turn it into an interactive, automated webinar that is more engaging than a live webinar by almost any metric you choose. Attendance rates are higher, watch times are higher, engagement is higher, and conversion rates are higher. eWebinar lets you do hundreds of webinars without ever needing to be there to host them live and without sacrificing a personal touch. So if your sales team is tired of doing the same demo over and over for unqualified leads or worse, prospects who don't even show up, an on-demand demo powered by eWebinar can help them get their time back so they can close more deals. If you're doing customer onboarding and training on repeat, eWebinar can help you automate those sessions so you never have to do them live again. Customer success teams are using eWebinar to run hundreds of webinars every single month without a live host. Why don't you give our product a try and see for yourself? Visit eWebinar.com to join our own on-demand demo or to sign up for a free trial. All right, now that I've gotten that out of my system, let's get back to the episode. It was a unusual time in my life, right? Just to be clear, like I was under a non-compete, so I couldn't work. I had been offered this like job that I was going to take six months from now. But yeah, I was working very part-time, but I loved it. I took ownership of it sort of immediately. So there was that period, right? And meanwhile, I was in that period looking forward to this job, which was going to start in six months, fully assuming that I was going to take that as a full-time job, right? In fact, that was the assumption. I was going to work as an employee for them. And I don't know, maybe three months in, two months in, I don't know what it was. But I was like, I think I like this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went to that company and I said, hey, I'm working on this thing now. I really like it. Are you open to having me work for you four days a week as an independent contractor? And they said, yes, much to my surprise. And that was how it started. So it was the best of both worlds for me. I loved working for that company, but I was much more passionate about eWebinar for a lot of different reasons. I knew that if it did become a full-time thing, it would give me more freedom, right? It would allow me to permanently, I mean, COVID was happening, right? So everyone was working remotely, but like it would let me work permanently remotely, like give me flexibility with my schedule. But I also love working on small scrappy teams. Like that's where I kind of thrive the most, even if I'm a part of a small scrappy team within a larger company, because I like to have my fingers in a lot of pies. Like I like understanding different parts of the business. I am kind of admittedly a jack of all trades and master of none, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, But like I understand how to do a lot of different things well enough, especially for a small growing company. And I wanted to get out of prop tech. That was also part of it. I'd been in prop tech for almost 20 years and I wanted to change. And I also really wanted to work with someone I trusted and I liked. I mean, I had good, first of all, I had these kind of terrible experiences with these two startups I was at. But yeah, the idea of having a friend and collaborator, as long as it worked, right? And that someone that I trusted and that trusted me, that was also a big part of my decision. So I think it was all of those things. But I think a lot of senior people are in that position, right? Where... I'm at the point where I'm wondering, okay, is this corporate job going anywhere? Is there something that's more for me? I've always wanted to dabble on this thing, but I've never had the opportunity. And now I have some freedom. Like David was also that guy when he joined his previous startup. But I think the key, like now that we're talking about founding teams is like, you need to find people who are kind of in that headspace, right? Who can really help you, who have the skills that you're not experimenting with people who are too junior and who have some 
kind of financial fallback that they're not like in dire straits if they don't get paid in the next two months. And sometimes, very rare, I think, for co-founders, but like the founding team, like sometimes they're in full-time jobs, but they're willing to work on this evenings and weekends. Those are the people that turn out to be gold because as soon as they see the vision, they're in it, they work harder because they want to get out of the corporate job. Like they're trying their best to contribute to help you succeed so they can change their life. And I think there's a lot of people out there that are like that. They can't quit their job 100%, but this becomes like a bit of a bridge. Yeah, I really think that's true. I never really thought about that in terms of myself, but there's no way they would have let me work for them four days a week as a contractor if I wasn't a senior person, right? If I were a junior, they'd be like, are you kidding me? Like, I think that is kind of the sweet spot. Like finding someone who has a lot of experience, they're looking for something new, they have either the side hustle or the financial stability to kind of take a little bit of a risk and try something new. That's definitely where I was. But that's also a great way to, you talked about like vetting people, right? Like it's not just skill sets, it's like mission alignment, vision alignment, value alignment, it's vibe alignment, right? Do we get along? The first few people that start helping your startup, like you're going to be work best friends with these people. So do you get along? And like passion is not something that you can fake. No, 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 no. You definitely can't. Even with David, it wasn't until like he was just helping me out as a contractor, like to bridge getting rid of this dev shop. But you can tell when someone is so passionate about this thing that they're working on it and thinking about it all the time. Like every waking moment, they're trying to contribute. They're throwing out ideas. And it was only then that I was like, okay, I think it's time to maybe bring this up in a more serious way. But it works with anybody on that founding team. Right. So just putting ourselves in the shoes of the person that's starting a company, right? A new founder, right? Who's looking to put together a founding team. What does a great founding team look like? How would you describe that? You say, look for these things. What would you say? Yeah, I mean, I think at the very, very bare minimal, you need two expertise. It's very rare that they appear in the same person, but you know, solo founders do exist. I obviously tried to be one of them and didn't work. You need two expertise. So one is product, right? CTO, like someone's coding it. And then the other is sales on the business side. But sales is also like visionary sales, marketing, messaging. In the beginning, you're like literally everything. So at the very, very bare minimal, you need two expertise. Most of the time, it's two people, right? So let's just say it's your CTO and, and your CEO. And if you had a third person who was the jack of all trades, you're made. So I know that we're all jack of all trades, right? Like even David has to learn new things because he needs to know how to do a certain thing to guide the team. But also in the beginning, there was nobody covering certain parts of, I don't know how you say it, but like, let's just say certain parts of like the code. So then he had to learn that part. We all become jack of all trades in the domain as much as we can as a sales driven founder. Like I'm writing the website, right? Writing the sales pitches, doing the pitch deck, right? Calling people, talking to customers. Like I'm not just going out there to sell. Like I'm doing a lot of stuff. I'm, I'm doing the projections, right? Like I'm making sure there's money in the bank, you know? I think the defining characteristic of a jack of all trades is someone who actually is interested in learning new things, right? And is like, let's figure this out. Because like, for example, with myself, I knew literally nothing about SEO. I had picked up a few things by sort of like being peripheral to it, but I was tasked. I remember you were like, basically like figure out SEO. That was sort of the directive yeah. I got. <laughs> you know, I just like, yeah. <laughs> not small. And I felt completely overwhelmed at first, but then once I started getting under the skin of it, then it became a challenge. It's like, how do we crack this nut and solve it and win? So it's like finding someone who's not afraid to learn, who enjoys learning, who enjoys solving problems. Because inevitably, no matter what, at a small startup with so few people, you're going to be doing a lot of different kinds of stuff. And if your third jack of all trades is someone like you who is curious, who wants to succeed, who wants to support 
the founders into creating a real business and understands where the gaps are, right? Like when I was describing the CTO and CEO, I didn't even begin to describe like the product, right? Like the CTO is not always a person that specs the product and all that stuff. Right? And, and in fact, he, he isn't, right? Like you are. So if you have someone who is a jack of all trades, but is covering you in the operational side of things, you're golden. However, if you don't have that person, you'll figure it out because you're a startup. You'll figure it out. You have to. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's a huge bonus if marketing is an expertise that the team has, but you figure it out. Like we had to figure it out. Yeah, for sure. So I feel like we've talked a lot about finding the founding team, how to vet them, how to sort of the qualities you should look, you should look for. But what are your thoughts about trading work for equity? Like, let's talk about compensation a little bit. My knee-jerk reaction is don't do it. And I lived through kind of a nightmare scenario where in my previous company, of course, I didn't have any money, didn't have any experience. And I wanted more support for my CTO because our team was just so small. And we were just starting to build the new product. My first company was an agency. And then my second company was a product company, but there was like a bridging period. And we needed to build a new product. One of my friends in Vancouver that owned a dev shop was like, oh, we can help you build the product with your co-founder if you pay us half in cash and half in equity because we want to do you a favor. That was how it was positioned to me, right? And I didn't really know what it was like to work with dev shops at that time or what it even meant to trade work for equity, but the equity would have been like 1.6% or something. So it didn't feel like a lot. Nothing feels like a lot in the beginning. And that's the problem, right? That relationship also didn't work out because actually what ended up happening was they ended up testing their junior hires on us. Oh, Jesus. So they were a dev shop that would work for like Adobe and Apple and all that stuff, but they would hire like these super junior people and test them on this free project because we were a throwaway. And we only knew that, well, first the software was never working. So I was like, well, how can this person have such a successful dev shop and be my friend, but nothing's ever working. And we only found out because somebody from inside the dev shop told us, hey, by the way, this is happening. At that time, I was like so sick of this and felt cheated. And I was just like, you know what? Don't touch it anymore. We'll take it over. And I just signed off on it. I didn't push back and I just signed off on it because it didn't seem like a lot, right? However, where it did come back to bite me was I didn't realize that a shareholder of any percentage is still a shareholder. When it came time to sell the company, like we're talking years later, I realized like, because my friend and I weren't in touch anymore, somewhere along the past few years, he sold that company to a public company without telling us. At that point, the holder of those shares was the public company, but I didn't have a contact. And I actually got in touch with him and said, Hey, can you give me a contact? Because I'm trying to contact their lawyer and the CFO and no one's responding. And he was like, Oh, it's all up to you. I'm not in contact with them. Like he was just like super nonchalant about it. And I was so pissed because I'm like, it matters so little to you this 1.6%, you could have just given it back to me, right? Like I was the one that was suffering. You knew what place I was at, but you took advantage of me. Not only did you take advantage of me, you gave my shares away, like without even telling me. So now I'm trying to scramble because every shareholder has to sign off on the closing documents. Otherwise you can't sell your company. So I only learned that by going through this process. And eventually the day before the previous company was closing. Did I learn that you can't close a company without every signature, without taking them to court, even if you have majority? This like might be a Canadian thing or it might be how we structure the initial documents. I don't know how I did it, but somehow I found the mobile number of the CFO of that company and I texted him a sob story on how he needed, like, and how this was life-changing for me and he needed to sign it now. And he was very kind about it, but he cared so little that he didn't know I was trying to contact him this entire time. Oh, geez. So what seems so little in the beginning, in the end, actually matters. Every percent matters. I think equity is really expensive if you believe your company is going to be worth something someday. Right? Nobody thinks about the 1% in the beginning, but a shareholder is a shareholder. So imagine if you're, just do the math, right? If your company is going to sell for 5 million, what's 1% of 5 million? Can you afford to pay that person less than that 1% right now? 
So my position now, and this is what I tell everybody, is do whatever you can to pay people because you should be minimizing your cap table, not expanding it. In the beginning, I ran into a lot of fairly senior consultants, contractors, agencies that were like, oh, we only work with part cash, part equity. And I'm like, well, then I can't work with you. Like nobody has equity in the company unless they're buying into the equity. And that's actually the only way that I can keep it fair. My default is like, do not trade work for equity because it's what seems cheap now ends up being really expensive. Is there an appropriate use for equity? Like what about using it for attracting talent? What about equity for your co-founder? How do you decide on a split? What are your thoughts on that stuff? I think with the founding team, it's always a bit tricky, right? Because you can't pay everybody market salary and then... People expect equity to work even part-time for you because they're halving their rate, like whatever that equation is, right? I think for a co-founder, you absolutely have to give them equity. But the way that I would suggest an equity split is, well, first of all, like just because you're co-founders doesn't mean it's split down the middle. Like I'm not a believer of that because I don't believe that people are equal contributors, I had the same conversation with David and luckily it wasn't a tough conversation because he saw me, I was with him for many years. So he saw my struggles with my previous co-founder and how having that equal split kind of wore down on me over time because I didn't feel like he was an equal contributor. And I think that happens a lot, right? In like co-founder conflicts or whatnot. So even with David, it was like, okay, you're coming in a year later. I'm going to do these things. You're going to do these things. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. But based on the facts of what we both think we're going to contribute, what is the percentage that you need to feel ownership and not feel like I'm trying to screw you over or I don't want any of that, right? So he thought about it, gave me a number. I upped it a little bit and that was a split. And that's a fair split because it was like everybody feels that their opinion was heard, right, in that conversation. So I think between co-founders, like, it's not like, well, I'm a co-founder, so you cut it in half. It's like, well, no, let's have an honest conversation about what is required, right? And what is required is not like, okay, product and sales. It's product, like coding, it's sales, it's marketing, accounting, recruiting, retention. These are just like some of the things, right? It's like, it's product management, right? It's, if you're an enterprise, then it's going to conferences, like whatever that might be. So there is like a, a fairly significant list of you when you start listing them out of the expertise that you need. Using equity to attract talent, I think I, because of the story I just told you, I am so careful of who has equity in this company. So either you buy in as a friends or family. So we had an early friends or family round. Either you're buying in, everyone's on the same terms, but I pay people what they ask for. That's where I start. That is my starting point. So I'm not asking you to take concessions. I'm using the money that I raise and my own money that I invest to pay you your rate. But I tell everybody that comes in that if one day they stay with us long enough that they become an indispensable part of this business, then there'll be options, right? Opportunities for options. But you can't come to me and say, well, I'm not going to join this team unless you give me options. Well, I don't know who you are. Right? <laughs> I don't even know if you're going to stay. And then all of a sudden, I'm chasing you around to sign my closing papers, right? Like, that's kind of how I think about it. And that's why, like, I tell everybody, like, pay people when you can. But I also recognize that that's kind of a luxury and you can't always. But just be very careful, right? Because, like, equity is like toothpaste. You got to think about it like toothpaste. Once it's out of the tube, it's, there is yeah. no way to stuff it back in. So be very <laughs> careful, like, who you're tying yourself to. Yeah. And I guess it's like, this is more of a thing that VC backed companies can do because they can use equity to attract people and stuff, but it is very different story for a bootstrapped startup, I think. Well, a lot of times when people say equity, they actually mean options, right? Because equity has value. And actually I had to do this thing with David where like, because he was coming in a year later and there was already in theory IP that was created before him, I couldn't give him equity without a tax implication on either side. So if I gave him equity and the IRS challenges him and he didn't pay tax on that because it, it would have been kind of like income, then he would have been in trouble. So the way that we did it financially was I sold it to him. So in theory, I sold it to him and I basically just reported on the gains that I didn't actually receive. So I paid taxes on the equity that I gave him because it was a year in. And that's why people do options because options are not 
real, right? It's just a option to convert to shares later on. Right, right. So then equity aside, how do you budget for a founding team? How did you pay for it? Because you got to pay people, right? So yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's tough. Well, first you got to sell a startup uh, and yeah, then you that can pay help. them. Yeah, that did help a little bit. Jokes aside, I didn't sell it for like retirement yeah. level, like tech crunch, yeah. like worthy money, right? Like enough to keep myself alive. I knew enough to keep myself alive for a few years. And then enough to write the first check into the company to show that I was sincere about what we're doing. And the thing is, I believe like if you can't invest your own money, nobody else will. So I'm going to be the first person to put my money where my mouth is. But both you and David had contracting jobs that were paying pretty well. And that lasted a good two years before that ended. But the way that I budgeted was like, I just tried to keep burn as low as possible. I raised just enough for two years of runway, like from friends and family. I'm pretty obsessive with like my Excel projection. So I knew exactly how much I could spend on who. And in Vietnam, we up the rate now, but like a senior in Vietnam, we were paying 4000 a month for. And like right. senior in Vietnam is not senior in New York. It's very different. However, like they're pretty good. They're not awesome, but they're pretty good. So we were keeping burn as low as possible based on where we were hiring. And I did it very differently before. Like I talked about this before, like, you know, I, in my past startup, I just had an agency and I just took money for services. And then I took all the revenue with that and got a loan against that and then put all that money into a new company. And that was like my starting capital. I think as a bootstrapper, you just make it work. Yeah, yeah. You take side hustles, you take side jobs, you find people with side hustles, you find people where it's like cheap to hire and you literally just make it work. And I don't know how this happens, but the people that have made it, I've just done it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Can you kind of summarize, like as a bootstrapped company without product or revenue, how do you get people to come on board at the very beginning? I mean, we've kind of talked about this the whole time, but how would you wrap that up? You need to have like something to offer that's not equity. Like I've heard a lot of times, because I'm also in a lot of founder groups and Facebook groups and things like that. Somebody will be like, I need a co-founder. I will give you 30%. It's like, well, 30% of zero is still zero. Like no one's going to quit their job for equity that's worth nothing, especially when you have nothing. I think while equity should not be taken lightly from a shareholder's perspective, it's not worth anything to someone that can actually help you. Anyone senior who can help you accelerate will know that 90% of startups don't work out. So you just need to pay me. I think especially in the beginning... The thing that you have to offer is you have to let people believe that you are the one that's going to take them to this promised land, whether it's you wanting more freedom and you don't have that today. You have to make them believe that you will take them closer to their ultimate goal. And through that, you make them believe that investing in you is going to be better than investing in their own job right now or another founder. And that's hard to do, but... The way that I did it, and I think I did the same thing with you, is like I just explained the premise of this lifestyle company, where I want to get to just in life as a person, like living freely, traveling, having fun, and wanting to provide that for the rest of my team. And ideally, I have a group that I get along with and that I'm friends with. But you need people not with just aligned vision for what you're building, right? You need their aligned vision on how you can help them live. Because I think that's more and more important as like people are putting lifestyle ahead of work and happiness ahead of revenue is like, how is working for you going to make them better? Not just richer, just better, happier. And I think being authentic into sharing that vision is probably the best way. But that's how you get people on board is like, you make them think that by working with you, they're going to get something that they can't get from the company that they're working with now. And that's how you get them to work with you on their free time. Like instead of going out on Sunday, like they're going to work on this. I agree with you that that only really works if you do it authentically, right? If you're trying to like pull something over on someone or try to convince them when there's kind of no there there, that doesn't work. Yeah. Authenticity, I think is key. I think we're kind of getting ready to wrap up. Do you have any kind of final suggestions for 
people who are listening what they should do to put a team together from the start, especially if they don't have a co-founder or a candidate for a co-founder, what would your final suggestions be? Don't feel like you have to jump into anything quickly. Don't feel like just because you have a startup, you need to find a co-founder today. Work with people as contractors, pay them, work a side job so you can pay them and figure out what that relationship is going to be like before you start splitting your house. That is like my number one suggestion is like, you don't need to split anything. Like just, just date a bit first before you get married. And if you don't know who that person is yet, like go and network, right? Go to the meetups, go to the startup events, ask your friends. I joined on deck. It's like this cohort, like co learning community based on San Francisco, but now they're everywhere. But like within those communities, there are thousands of people looking for co-founders. But even when you find that person, don't be like, great, Todd, you can be my co-founder. Let's incorporate and we could just split it in half. Just chill out a bit. <laughs> <laughs> just see if the other person, if you're the person with the idea, just see if the person even likes the idea. And I guarantee you, if you work with them for two to three months, you will know if they have passion for it or not, because they cannot fake liking something for that long. Yeah, right. I think that's a great place to wrap up. So just to kind of summarize what we talked about today, talked about putting together a founding team. That's been the sort of whole theme of today, working with contractors, how to find and choose the right people. And then finally, we talked about what it takes to convince those people to come on board. So what's your hot take with all that in mind? Do you have a hot take for us at the end of the episode? I think my hot take is as a bootstrap company, the best thing you can do is to work with contractors because it makes it financially feasible for you to have a company at all. And don't limit that to the rest of the team. Like also see your co-founder as someone that you can test out. Like same thing, right? Like you don't have to jump into something so quickly, but just start light and then expand outwards. You don't have to copy your venture back friends, right? What they're going to do is get an office, they get money, they get an office, they hire everybody on day one, like as an employee, like you don't have that luxury and don't feel like that's one way of building a business, but it's not the only way. And it's certainly not the cheapest way, like the absolute cheapest and most efficient way to start a business is to hire people as needed in a place where you can afford them. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. What is your hot take? I mean, it's sort of like a kind of different take on the same idea, which is don't settle. I mean, I can see how it happens. At the beginning, there's enthusiasm. You share your idea. You vibe with someone. Let's dive in. Let's just do it. Here's half, right? But by starting light and taking it slow, you can also realize that something isn't working and to not be afraid to say this didn't work because when a team's this small, everyone has to be great. Like everyone has to be great. So you can't end up with a dud. It's way too painful in the long term. So like maybe don't settle isn't quite right. It's more like take your time. It's sort of what you were saying, but that's the idea. Just don't, you can't afford to have anyone on your founding team who's not great. But that works also on the other side, right? If you're looking to join a founding team of something else, right? Yeah, for sure. Don't feel like you need to commit 100%. Like, Absolutely. If you're a CTO of a big company now and you've always wanted to join a startup, like, ask a startup that you're interested in if you can just contract for them as a fractional CTO, even if you can't code all the time. Like, Take part early. Like, Get in early as a ground floor startup. And if it doesn't work, you're not committed. But I think it's a great way to like vet other startups. And in fact, when David was a fractional CTO, that was one of his ideas was like, oh, if I just kind of dabbled into multiples and I have many eggs in many baskets and maybe I'll come up with, or maybe I'll meet a startup where I actually want to join. But yeah. we're actually going to talk about that on our next episode. So I'm going to stop okay. here right. and wrap it up here. <laughs> so if there are particular topics that you want us to get into this season, please let me know by connecting with me on LinkedIn. If you have any feedback about this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. My name is Melissa Kwan, last name spelled K-W-A-N. 
And if what we've talked about today resonates with you, subscribe to ProfitLed on your favorite podcast app to get notified of new episodes and join our mailing list by going to ProfitLed.fm. I promise to only share things you'll actually care about. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. Thanks for listening to ProfitLed. If you enjoyed this episode, we hope you will subscribe to the ProfitLed podcast and head over to our website, ProfitLed.fm, to see the show notes of every episode. You can also join our mailing list to be notified of new episodes or when we have interesting products and resources to share. We promise to only share things you'll actually care about. Thanks again for listening. Bye now.